What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What do you do when you get stuck on a movie line with a guy like this behind you? Wait a minute, why can't I give my opinion? It's a free country. He he, he can give you, you have to give it so loud. I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's work. We miss the movies so much, we even miss the Marshall McLuhan pontificators. This week on the show, we mourn the current closure of movie theaters with our top five movie-going experiences. Listeners chime in, too. That and more. That's funny, because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh. I'm Adam. And as we record this, Josh, movie theaters are closed. They've been closed for a month or more, and they'll continue to be closed for the foreseeable future, which means this week's top five movie-going experiences is either perfectly timed or it's the last thing people want to hear right now. Yeah, it could be either an act of mourning or celebration. I'm curious, Adam, is this the longest you've gone since you started going to the movies when you were young uh, without being at a theater? Because I think it might be for me, actually. It has to be, right? When would you ever be away from movies? Maybe when my first child was born, but even then, and we'll get into this a little bit with our list. I remember going to a lot of movies when Holden was very young. That's what That was my thought, too, is it must have been when we had a new baby. But no, because in both cases, I was working as you know, a full-time film critic. So I would have gotten back to work within a month for sure and been in a theater. So yeah, this has been a long stretch. If you were anticipating our Ghostbusters versus Gremlins throwdown, we have decided just to move that to next week. So if you didn't get those viewings in, you have a little bit more time, that part of our eight from 84 series. This was a top five that our producer Sam suggested. In fact, he's been suggesting it for many months, maybe Oh, Maybe years. a couple of years. years. It right, comes Josh? up annually. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, we have always resisted it. We may talk about our apprehensions a little bit. And now it's gone from the top five we both vowed maybe never to do to a segment that I vowed to Sam would never be more than about 12 to 15 minutes to an entire show. Well, let's just state for the record, that happens almost every time we do a top five, where you'll say this is only going to be 12 minutes and it it could be an entire show. So that's nothing new. Um, But yeah, our resistance to this list um, is is proven. There's historical basis for that. But times have changed. It's a different time, Adam. And I think Mm -hmm. think it does call for this list. Before we get to that, though, we want to once again mention the Chicago Cinema Workers Fund and then also the Art House America campaign. Campaign. The Art House America campaign is co sponsored by the Criterion Collection, and it's already raised over $500,000 for independent cinemas across the country. So, again, keeping this on the mind, not being able to go to theaters like these independent cinemas, and really worrying about their future. More information on both of these funds, again, the Chicago Cinema Workers Fund and then the Art House America campaign, will be in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net. On Twitter, I invited listeners to write or call in with the names of family and friends who are working on the front lines during this pandemic. And we heard from friend of the show, Kenny Meyer, also longtime listener, Tom Morris, and they called in with some shout outs. We want to make sure that Jamie and Jennifer get some well-deserved attention. Hey, film spotting. This is Kenny Meyer back in uh, Palm Desert, California. 
and uh, just wanted to call in response to the tweet about the frontline workers uh, dealing with COVID-19. Um, you guys know my sister, Jamie. Um, she works in respiratory therapist at Loma Linda Hospital, a big hospital here in Southern California, and uh, is definitely um, on the front lines, as they say. But if you follow her on Letterboxd, you know, she's still finding lots of time to keep up on movies. And she's already seen Blow the Man Down, so she's one ahead of me right now. So just shout out to my big sister, Jamie. Um, thanks for doing what you do. Keep up the hard work. And uh, thanks to everybody who's out there working on our behalf. All right, film spotting. Adam, Josh, Sam, love you guys. Thanks for the show. been a long time since I've given any feedback. Um, so... All at once, happy holidays, happy 15th anniversary. Thanks for the Betty Davis Marathon, and all right, talk to you soon. Hey, film spotting. This is Tom Morris of the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. I just want to call and give a shout-out to a very special person dear to me uh, who is a uh, frontline worker. That would be my wife, Jennifer. She is a unit secretary at a hospital in my area. <clears throat> Hers is actually one of the more complicated jobs and she's you know, if you hit <clears throat> if a patient hits the uh, help button, she's the first person they speak to. She's the one that organize <clears throat> that handles all the uh, assignments. She gets the nurses to to alert them when something's going wrong. She is basically the person that probably speaks the most to the patient without them ever realizing it. And I feel like that her and others in her position should get many shout outs as they're the unsung heroes, <clears throat> just like you know editors are and so forth in film. Anyway, um let's give praise to all those healthcare workers fighting to save everyone suffering from COVID nineteen. Thanks. Thank you, Kenny and Tom, for your thoughtful voicemails and of course thank you, Jamie and Jennifer, for everything you're doing and our thanks as well to everyone out there working on the front lines. If you have a friend or family member you want to give a shout out to, you could drop us a line, 312-264-0744, or send us an MP3 file or an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. We're going to get into our top five now, Josh, movie going experiences with some poll results that you could argue completely contradict the spirit of the top five. We asked listeners to vote on their favorite type of movie-going experiences. We came up with these four. Opening night full house for a comedy. Opening night full house for an action movie. Or opening night full house for a horror movie. You could also go, I'm not into crowds. Weekday alone at my favorite art house. Finally, if none of those fit the bill for you, you could vote other and write in your choice. How did it come out, Josh? This is incredibly revealing, I think, Adam. Other is in last place with 6%. And then packed pretty tightly together are the three communal options. So 10% of the vote went to opening night horror movie, 11% opening night comedy, and 18% opening night action movie. So you see some differentiation there among those options. But easily winning this poll, we're a bunch of loners in Film Spotting Nation. Weekday alone at my favorite art house took it with 55% of the vote. That's also how you and I voted. Yeah, it is. Though, in fairness, we could say that instead of being a bunch of loners, Film Spotting Nation is actually just a bunch of snobs. And it's not so much the day of the week or going by yourself or with a group. It's the type of movie. And 
They just love the art house fair. Loners, snobs. You say potato. Yeah, exactly. We heard from John Dembski, who said, I voted alone slash art house, though. It's really a tie of extremes for me. The other being full house slash blockbuster. The alone art house, preferably daytime experience, really puts you in a trance. There's nothing quite like seeing, for example, the Apu trilogy at Film Forum, then leaving the dark theater for the bright, bustling streets of New York and wandering literally and in your mind with one foot still in the world of the film. On the other hand, the communal anticipation in line, the urgency of getting a good seat, and the roars of both laughter and gasps during an opening weekend showing of, say, a Fast and Furious film, it's the type of raw shared energy most people search for at music festivals or sports stadiums. I need both and miss them dearly. And I think that's the case. I think even us and the people who voted the 55% who said weekday alone at the art house, we want both, and we do crave both. And we're going to reflect back on some of the best communal experiences that we've had going to the movies. Yeah, that makes sense to me. My, my vote in favor of being alone was not in opposition to those other options because I do love all of those other options as well. So that's mm. fair. John characterizes it well. We're going to sprinkle some more pull feedback into our picks. And to kick off those lists, let's get a little bit more listener feedback. Let's hear from Caleb. Uh, hey, Film Spotting Crew. My name is Caleb Turner. Um, I'm in the DCA, and I've been a listener since around 2016 or so. I just wanted to call in because I have a fairly fun story that always gives me, you know, feel-good vibes when I think back on it. Last summer, I was a part of a fellowship that sent me to Beijing, China, to be a videography intern for a craft brewery there. Shout out to Jing A Beer. As a film major and big movie buff, I, of course, immediately sniffed out where I could see new releases. Now, note that I neither speak nor read Mandarin, so my movie-watching attempts were predicated on my ability to point to a poster, hold up a finger, and say, Iga. Anyways, on a day that I was feeling particularly homesick, I decided to watch The Lion King remake. Now, normally I wouldn't support a clear cash grab like that, but the potential nostalgic comfort food I'd get for seeing a movie from my childhood on the big screen in a foreign country was just too much to turn down. Well, I sit down in this packed Chinese theater and the lights dim and there's the iconic, you know, opening like, nah, you know, like and all around me, the kids in the audience start singing along. And this continued for the entire movie, every single song, except for maybe the, the new one that they made for the 2019 version. Um, and I'm not sure if I bought a sing-along ticket or if this was a cultural thing or what and you know, normally this might have been a nuisance, um, but in the moment, it, it really filled my heart to know that, you know, these young kids halfway across the world are getting the same thrill that I had uh, with The Lion King when I was a kid. Um, and just thinking back on it, you know, in times like these, the global humanity that I really, you know, the kinship that I felt uh, in that theater um, is a godsend to, to think about. Um, anyways, Keep up the good work. Uh, really enjoy listening. Uh, bye. Thank you, Caleb. I think that's definitely in the right spirit of this top five, talking about that communal aspect and on a global level there, crossing cultures. I don't know. Have you ever had an experience like that, Josh, watching a film in a foreign country, maybe in a foreign language even? Boy, that is a good question. I, I don't have think a I vague, have. I have a vague memory of 
going to see something when I was young with a family or at least trying on a family vacation. And I would have been middle school, high school in Paris um, because my family was weird like that. We would go to movies even on vacation. Um, but yeah, other than that, I don't think so. We did try on more recent family trips, um, but never pulled that off. So yeah, I haven't had that experience. Well, let's talk about some experiences you have had, did you at some point stop worrying and love this top five? And I'd love to hear your number five. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I think because, you know, I think both of you and I have said when Sam brought this up in the past is we sadly don't know if we have five that we would name when we go back in our memory. And I don't know what that speaks to. Uh, but once I did sit down and kind of um, pry into the memory banks, ask questions and fill in some of the details, I think that's what it was for me mm -hmm. is that, you know, I had a ton that popped into my head, but, you know, besides a line or two of description or saying like, oh, I remember seeing this movie at this age. Um, how could I kind of fill that out into a top five list? But asking questions again of family members who are there with me and things like that did begin to fill into some of those details. And, and I would say, you know, true to how I did answer the poll question, um, I love having a theater to myself and some of my memories are like that. So say Tati's Playtime, I can remember distinctly seeing that as part of the Music Boxes a matinee series. For a while, they were doing these Saturday morning classic movies and I was living near to the Music Box at the time, so it wasn't a problem. Didn't have kids at that point to just sneak out on a Saturday morning and catch a classic film and have great memories of doing that. But again, is that something I want to put on a top five list? So when it came to making this, um, the memories that made it are mostly communal, even though I went the other way in the poll, you know, and mm -hmm. I think I'm sure that's being influenced by our current situation where it is not only the big screen, um, but also the people around you that we're missing. Um, even for someone who like me, who's an introvert, I, I think that's influencing why um, I went this way with my list. So my number five um, kind of covers a lot of what I was just describing. And we may have a couple of times here where we talk about Star Wars in these lists. Uh, Star Wars, you know, to me, it seems like there's a bit of a sourness around it in general these days uh, for a lot of people. You and I were positive, you know, to varying different degrees on the last three films, but the dialogue around them for sure has gotten so vitriolic um, that one thing I think has been lost is how great these movies are, all of them to see in a theater. Uh, you've got that blast of John Williams' score with the opening titles, right, which everyone is expecting and anticipating and kind of like hushing more quietly than they would for any other movie to wait for. You have um, just that communal nostalgia and giddiness, and maybe even, maybe even with these last three, some of the snarkiness has become part of the communal fun. I know during Rise of Skywalker, um, there was some more talk back to the screen from people who were not happy about different directions that the movie had been going, and that was honestly kind of the fun. So here's my memory, um, and this is... I think the nostalgia element was the strongest for me when I saw The Force Awakens in a theater in 2015. Um, this was after you and I had seen it for the show and recorded our review, but went back a second time. And this time I was with family members ranging in age from, I want to say, eight years old going up to 91. Uh, 
So we were in the theater, just a local, you know, multiplex with four generations. Uh, my niece and nephew were there young, my uh, own daughters who were a little bit older. It was their first Star Wars movie in a theater, I should note. Then my two sisters, me and Debbie, representing another generation. My dad was there on behalf of the boomers. And then my grandfather, who was the 91-year-old at the time. And I should note my grandfather has two movie reviews, Adam, when he comes out. <laughs> Is he on Letterboxd? <laughs> no, I'll talk to him about that. <laughs> One of his reviews is, that was the best movie I've ever seen. And his other review is, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> so where does Force fall? For- Force got a best. It got, a, it got oh. a, yes, best movie he's ever seen. He's seen a lot of best movies. Um, so that was fun. And I, you know, I just think... For me, Star Wars movies, we've talked about these being some of the defining films of our childhood. So just getting to see a new Star Wars movie with your own kids is a special experience. Um, And it sort of puts all the bickering about them in perspective and makes it seem not really that important when the important thing was, you know, sitting in that theater, hearing that music um, with your kids a couple seats over. Great choice. And we did not coordinate our picks at all, but you'll find out in a minute that we're aligned here on number five. You're right in setting up your list. I was resistant because I just didn't think there was enough interesting details to share. You reflect on these experiences, and unless something really momentous happens during the runtime of the movie, then what are you going to talk about? But the more I thought about it, you realize that it's not the experience itself so much as the circumstances surrounding that event, that trip to the movie. So we'll get a little bit of both here as we go through my list and probably your list as well. But I was able to really open it up the more I thought back on what did drive, what initiated those experiences to the theater, and then also what the fallout was, what ended up happening because of that trip to the movie theater. To help set up my number five, and really to help set up my entire list, I wanted to share this voicemail from Jim McDevitt, my bartender at Bukowski's Tavern in Boston. Hey, Adam and Josh, this is Jim McDevitt, host of the Should Have Been There Last podcast, calling from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I just wanted to pass along one of my most memorable movie-going experiences, Uh, It was December of 2001. My friends and I, uh, we rode the bus into downtown Crossing to see the newly released uh, Fellowship of the Ring. We were only a few months removed from 9-11, and I think uh, even then we were all aware that we were entering a different world. Uh, We were also keenly aware that as we got deeper and deeper into high school, our worlds and our friendships would be changing. Uh, So I think the Fellowship of the Ring was kind of perfect for us at that time. Um, As we rode the bus home after the movie, we debated who was who among our group. Uh, The consensus was that I was Legulas, I think in part because I was one of the taller kids, uh, though I think of myself more as the Gandalf of the group. But one does not simply assign themselves Gandalf. Uh, Thanks for all that you guys are doing. Um, Quick shout out to all of my family and friends who are working in hospitals around the country, including right there in Chicago. I hope everybody's staying safe and sane, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Thanks. So I'm not sure Jim actually had that experience. I think he might be cribbing that from Stand By Me from that Rob Reiner film. But seriously, he talks about 
the importance of that movie as marking a transition. And I had these picks all in place, Josh, before I realized that that's exactly what all of these picks did in some way. So we're going to kind of go chronologically and we're really going to see how I grew as a film fan starting way back as a child. And you talk about the nostalgia factor in Star Wars. Well, this is where that all began. Star Wars, A New Hope, At the Drive-In, Grinnell, Iowa, Summer... I think circa 1978 to 80. And it really is circa 78 to 80 because those are some hazy details here. But I thought this was just my first drive-in experience and my first kind of life-changing cinematic experience. But it turns out, if my mom is right, it must have been my first ever theater experience. I always thought it was going to see Cinderella. I knew I was five or six years old. Some family friends came over and said, hey, to my parents, we're going to take Adam off your hands for the day. We'll take him downtown and go see a movie or you can go roller skating. What does Adam want to do? And I decided I wanted to go to the movie and we went and saw Cinderella. But if my mom's right, and this happened back in 1978, Josh, I would have been a wee lad of only three years old when we got into my parents' station wagon, this big gray boat, and I went with my best friend, Justin. I think his mom probably went along too. She was my babysitter at the time, and my mom took us to see Star Wars. Of course, it would have opened the previous year, but it would have still been very active in theaters, especially at second-run drive-ins like the one in small-town Iowa, and The part that has always been etched in my brain, more than watching the movie itself, again, I was very young, maybe three, maybe up to five at the oldest, is the ride home. I do recall being so caught up in everything I was watching on screen and those characters and me and Justin so badly immediately wanting to be Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and wanting lightsabers and wanting to fly the Millennium Falcon that... That's what we did. We pretended the whole way home in the back of the station wagon. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what we were doing, (laughs) right? And we did as kids. (laughs) We had a lot more freedom then, literally. What were seatbelts? Right, exactly. The late 70s. Me and my sisters or my friends, in this case, we always just played way in the back end of that station wagon. So imagine coming home at night, having just seen A New Hope on the big screen. The stars are out, and you've got that big back station wagon window that really did feel to us just like looking out the Millennium Falcon cockpit. That's where the fun begins. How long before you can make the jump to light speed? Take a few moments to get the coordinates from the Navi computer. Are you kidding? The rate they're gaining? Traveling through hyperspacing like dust and crops, boy. Without precise calculations, we'd fly right through a star or bounce too close to a supernova and then it injured trip real quick, wouldn't it? What's that flashing? Both yourselves in. I'm gonna make a jump to light speed. My mom said after that the reason why she places it as 78 is she thinks all my Christmas stuff in 1978 was Star Wars related. Yeah. Because of that experience at the drive-in. That's when my uncle bought me a Han Solo Star Wars sweatshirt that he went to a custom print shop and had made. Like, it just said Han Solo on the front and on the back, Star Wars. But I thought it was the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And I got Han Solo's gun and later the Millennium Falcon. So I think it was around 78. But man, that seems so young to have that type of reaction to a movie. And yet I wouldn't doubt it at all with Star Wars A New Hope. Well, it might have been the case, too, because my dad and I were talking about this. And you're right. It complicates things because Star Wars did run for so long in theaters. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
I may have had some of the toys before I even saw the movie, you know, because if huh. it had become such a sensation, I don't know. I, you could probably research when Kenner started producing those figures. Um, but my dad was saying it's it's very possible that you had gotten into the whole mythology of it through the toys, um, and, and then you saw the films later. So yeah, it's kind of a fuzzy time, but but definitely formative experience. Absolutely had those arguments with the kids on the block about who was going to get to be who. Was it pretty clear between you and Justin who was Luke and and who was Han, or was that a long debate? It was not a long debate. <laughs> it was not a very intellectual debate, I'm guessing, at the time either. But as I do recall, he wanted to be Luke, and that was fine with me. I always wanted to be Han Solo, and it was immediate, and it helped. It helped, because I know we played afterwards for many years. We would play Star Wars. He was blonde-haired, and I was brown-haired. Okay. So it just made sense sure. that he would be Luke and I'd be Han. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, on my block, we fought to the death to not be Luke. <laughs> it helped. It helped then that in 77, my sister Melissa was born. And so in the next few years, as she was two, three, four, five, I had Princess Leia to play with as well. Okay. Yes. And that happened. She would dress up as <laughs> Leia for Halloween. Good stuff. All right, let's share a little bit more listener feedback here. This is an email we got from Colton Butcher, who's in Los Angeles. While opening night, full house for any of these are fun, referring again to our poll options, it doesn't quite hit my personal favorite moments of going to the movies. Opening night, full house for a blockbuster franchise. Everything from Marvel to Godzilla to Fast and Furious. The fans of these series are so passionate and the energy so palpable on opening night for any franchise. I love being a part of that energy, regardless of how I feel about the movie. I've always felt such a high afterward. My earliest personal memory of this is the 2014 Godzilla reheat. Love that word, Josh. A pretty fine and okay movie, but my memory is more of the stadium cheer and jumping up out of chairs everyone did when Godzilla used his atomic breath. It was electrifying. The cheers and shouts for superheroes on screen are always so fun for me. That is the reason I will always love going to the theater. Peter Gillette picking up there where Colton left off says, starting with Fast Five, I've seen every film in the Fast and Furious franchise in the theater opening night. Say what you want about the cinematic exploits of The Family, which my buddy and I refer to as the Meathead Avengers films. They are packed to the gills with on-screen spectacle, a feature that has grown exponentially with later installments. And the opening night people watching for some fans who treat these films more as a lifestyle brand than as mindless entertainment has been chef's kiss delightful and Hobbs and Shaw notwithstanding the films have been super fun as well so Josh oh. you're a young boy you go to a Fast and Furious film let's say the first one are you coming out of that pretending then that you're Brian or are you Dom oh Brian all the way I mean that's of course you are <laughs> that is not even a moment of consideration I do not care for the Hobbs and Shaw shot there though a very fine of film. course you don't um also <laughs> I never expected we'd get this much Fast and Furious talk on, no, on this episode. I'm thinking about <laughs> what is in store for us, though, as as a civilization, as a society, really. All these people who, unlike us, grew up on the Star Wars films, they're going at age three, four, five, or maybe a little bit older to the Fast and Furious movies. Ride or die, Adam. Where does that leave us, Josh? We're going to ride, ride or die. We're going to ride or we're going to die. You know what? It's going to instill the importance of family in them. There and you that's go. a good thing. There you go. Okay, you're number four. All right, my number four pick. I don't know if any Chicago area listeners remember Harlem Corners. So this theater was in Bridgeview, which is just beyond Chicago's city limit on the southwest side. It was one of these... Uh, 
I forget if it was $1 or $3 theaters, but they would basically second run theaters. So they'd get the movies a month or so after their wide release and the tickets were much cheaper. I grew up not too far from Harlem Corners. And by the time I was in high school, it was one of the places I'd go to. It was cheap, right? Um, there was another one in Tinley Park, Bremen theaters. That was the other second run theater nearby. So in 1991, Harlem Corners was the only place I could see Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Despite, you know, Do the Right Thing had been a sensation, obviously, but despite that, Jungle Fever and then Spike Lee's previous movie, Mo Better Blues, which came just before it, they didn't get widespread suburban cineplex distribution. But I wasn't going to miss it. So off Debbie and I went to Harlem Corners, this is a high school date, to watch Spike Lee's drama about an interracial affair between Wesley Snipes and Annabella Sciorra. Now, up to that point, Adam, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I'd been the only white person in a room, or or even really one of only a few white people. And that was definitely the case, seeing Jungle Fever at Harlem Corners. So to call this something of a a cross-cultural experience would be an understatement. And then, you know, add the tensions at play in the movie with the storyline. And it was mm-hmm. it was interesting. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it was challenging to me in a way that I probably still need to be challenged just to have that experience of not being in the dominant group. Now, mm-hmm. once the movie got going, it was pretty clear that this is probably how you should watch every Spike Lee movie because his films they mean to make you uncomfortable, right? Especially, I think, if you're in the majority culture. Um, but at the same time, while they're doing that, they also kind of feel like something of a party. Uh, so all of that was at play in Harlem Corners. Audience definitely brought that to it and made it kind of kind of a perfect experience and definitely, mm-hmm. a, definitely a memorable one. Yeah, it sounds like it. My number four has a perfect setup here from Annie. Let's hear her voicemail. Hi, Film Spotting. This is Annie. I wanted to let you know about one of my top five movie-going experiences. It was definitely going to see E.T. in a big theater with my sisters and dad when I was a little kid. It was the second time I saw it. My dad had probably not been in a movie theater in a couple of decades because he was so busy working. And we brought him back to see E.T. after seeing it the first time. And when the kid, Elliot, goes up on the bike into the air with E.T. in his basket, um, my dad let out just the most joyful laugh you've ever heard um, because that was what that moment gave. And I just loved that movie as a little kid. And watching him laugh was just wonderful and what you're always after when you go to the movie theater. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Andy, so much for that. E.T., an honorable mention for me. I know I've told the story a couple times on the show before, but it's the first movie I remember where it got dusty in the theater for me, a.k.a. it challenged my burgeoning manhood because I would have been seven years old. I feel like my family, we couldn't get into the theater in town because it was sold out. So we had to drive maybe 20 or 30 minutes away to actually see E.T. And during E.T.'s goodbye, man, I I remember saying to myself, and I don't know who instilled this in me, Adam, you're a boy. You're not supposed to cry. Oh, wow. Did a teardrop, Josh? Did a teardrop? Who knows? It's lost to history. (laughs) You're not going to admit it to this day. Maybe the person who did instill some of that in me has a connection here to my number four pick also a father playing a role and do you remember the movie city slickers very oh, yeah. well at all uh, i mean i wouldn't Pretty say very movie. well but yeah well 
pretty good movie. And honestly, the only part of that film that ever really resonated with me or that stays with me is when Bruno Kirby and Daniel Stern are arguing about the greatest baseball player of all time, who that would have been. And Helen Slater, who I think is the only woman on this trip with them, she doesn't understand how guys spend so much time discussing baseball and caring about baseball. And she says what we talk about is real life with her female friends. They talk about real life. They talk about relationships. Kirby has a great response. He says, honey, if that were as interesting as baseball, they'd have cards for it and sell it with gum. (laughs) And Daniel Stern goes the less patronizing, serious route. And he says this. He says, you're right, I suppose. I mean, I guess it is childish. But when I was about 18 and my dad and I couldn't communicate about anything at all, we could still talk about baseball. Now that, that was real. Well, when I was 18 and my dad and I couldn't communicate about anything at all, we could go to a Western, Josh. And that's what we did in January, 1993, the Capital Two in Newton, Iowa, the movie theater I worked at. And I think I was still doing some shifts then over the Christmas break. This would have been my first time back from college for an extended break like that. And this movie Tombstone, this Western about Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday comes out. And of course, because I was still working there, I got to sit in the balcony, which was otherwise closed to the public unless it was like Batman. Yeah, unless it was Batman or something where the crowd was so insane that they had to open it. It was never open. So my dad and I got to have the special treatment sitting up in the balcony, had the whole area to ourselves. I mean, I was a big man, free popcorn. Free yeah. drinks, Josh? You had, you you know, had made it. To, Your dad should have been yeah. impressed. I know. I got to throw my weight around there at age 18. And I would love to paint it, of course, as a really special bonding moment. I don't remember much that was said before, during, or after the movie. But we simply didn't spend that much time together during this period at all. And so having a new Western to show him, this is a genre of films he always loved and growing up, he was always watching John Wayne movies or Clint Eastwood movies. And I, I suppose, as somewhat of a rebellious spirit, decided that those movies weren't for me and I didn't really care about them at all. That gave me an impetus to extend an invitation to him and say, hey, this is something that we could do together. And I think we both could enjoy. I loved Kurt Russell. I love Val Kilmer. And I thought the movie looked like it would be really good. Also, thinking back on this, we didn't go to movies at the theater much together with either of my parents. I think maybe you had a few more experiences like that. Maybe we'll get to one. But we came of age in the 80s in the home video era. So we really did spend a lot of time once we got further into those 80s watching movies on VHS as a family. And I think the only other time I really remember seeing a movie with my dad in the movie theater was Top Gun in the mid eighties, I had already seen it and loved it so much. And we were always so into pilots and jets and things like that, even doing models as a kid of aircraft carriers and different types of aircraft that I knew that was a movie we needed to see together. So this was the first time in a long time, almost a decade probably. And I don't think we saw anything together between 93 and 2010 when he died. I think Tombstone was probably the last movie we saw together. And on top of it all, Josh, Tombstone, it turns out, I think is a really good movie. It was then, and I still like it. 
it will always be one of the most quotable, most rewatchable movies for me, with Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday as one of the most quotable, memorable gunslingers of all time, and Kurt Russell's Wyatt Earp as one of those ideal men I think my dad and I both wished that we could be. Something on your mind? Just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. <laughs> is that a fact? Yeah, it's a fact. Well, for a man that don't go healed, you run your mouth kind of reckless, don't you? No need to go healed to get the bulge on a tub like you. Is that a fact? Mm. That's a fact. I'll throw in that you're probably aware of this. Maybe we've touched on it on the show before. It was revealed a few years ago. I think Val Kilmer came out and said it, and I think other people have corroborated it, that George P. Cosmatos is credited as the director of tombstone but at some point very early in the process kurt russell basically took over and directed that film and if you look at his imdb kurt russell isn't credited with directing anything and i think tombstones are really well-directed well-made movie and it's a wonder to me that if he really did direct that film why he hasn't made anything else so do you remember at all what your dad made of it? Just describing him yeah. as something of a connoisseur of classic Westerns, I wonder if this kind of held up to them for him or if he was a little suspicious of it. Yeah, no deep conversations, but I know we both enjoyed it. And I remember afterwards at least talking about our favorite parts and some of the best lines in yeah. the movie. So yeah, it was an experience that we were able to share. We both liked the film a lot. Nice. Let's share another email from a listener, Dan Buckler here. Nothing beats an action flick on opening night at a second-run theater. The $12 ticket manners are dropped. Pre- and post-mortem one-liners get huge pops. Mediocrity is acceptable. It was a cheap seat. And a late dinner at Perkins awaits afterwards. Guess you always Perkins, have to you're speaking my language. Pair Perkins with the second-run theater there. Absolutely. Let's hear your number three, Josh. Okay, my number three. I'm pretty sure I've shared some of this on the show already at some point, but this is Sundance 2015, my first time at the festival. And so I figure I've, I've got to go to a midnight screening, right? That's one of those Sundance experiences I'd always heard about. So I meet up with Elijah Davidson. He's co-director of Real Spirituality at Fuller Theological Seminary, also film spotting listener. And we figure, let's check out this little horror movie from an unknown filmmaker named Robert Eggers. Let's, let's go see The Witch. Well, the place was packed, and that was good because at least I had the comfort of the crowd and Elijah next to me. Because as you know, Adam, the movie, terrifying. I mean, this is, this is one of those <laughs> that still haunts me to this day. I made it through the film, and Eggers was at Sundance, so he gets up for a Q&A afterwards. That goes on for a while, and the movie starts to dissipate, right? You start to feel safe again. You're out of it. The spell has been broken. But then it was time to get back to the condo where I was staying. The bus drops me off a couple blocks away. No one around, maybe 2.30 a.m., 3, something like that now. And while it's not exactly a forest, there are a lot of trees in Park City. And enough to make me think, you know, the witch herself, if not Black Phillip himself, could be <laughs> hiding behind any one of those trees. So just you're not going to confess anything about tears, Adam. I'm not going to confess whether or not I ran some of the way back to the condo, but I did make it. I was safe. I love it. I think fortunately for me and my embarrassment here publicly on the show, all of my most scaredy cat experiences all 
came within the privacy of my home, <laughs> either as a kid or as an adult. I don't think I have any movie-going experiences with a wider audience I could share, but maybe I just haven't really explored the recesses of my mind yeah, enough, Josh. You've, you've repressed them, I'm sure. I'm sure I have. All right, my number three is going to pick up where our listener Dan left off with a movie I saw at a second-run movie theater. And we're really going from boy to man now. We've gone from being very young to that transition from high school to college. And now it's the summer of 1995. You've been in school for a couple of years. And I had already seen Pulp Fiction upon its release, October 1994. And I know we touched on this during our Sacred Cow discussion of Pulp Fiction, which I think was our first ever Sacred Cow here on Film Spotting. I didn't fully recognize its genius at the time. Really liked it, thought it was good, but it didn't hook me the way Reservoir Dogs initially did. And it's now the summer. It's after my sophomore year of college. And I spent a lot of my time during the summers, starting right before my senior year of high school and then through college back home with my best friend from high school, Jason Moore, and another guy, Greg. So shout out to Wags if you're listening. But I met him even before I met my wife. He dated Sarah's older sister, and he had a great green 65 Mustang, Josh, that I'm still mad his family sold without <laughs> selling it to me. I love that car. And among Greg's myriad qualities was the fact that he was two grades ahead. So in the summer of 95, when I was 19, he was over 21, uh-huh. which means when we went to Billy Joe's picture show, and that's picture <laughs> Like P-I-T-C-H-E-R, not picture show. Yeah. (laughs) We were able to partake in the fun. And this is a theater I think I only went to once this one time. It opened in February of 1984. So this was like an original Brew and View situation. An original Brew and View. Exactly right. Got it. So he could order beer. And I'll just apologize now to the parents, I suppose, and the children of film spotting. I'm not a role model. And we we just take it for granted now. It's it's ubiquitous. Every movie theater you go in, it's a movie where you can probably buy alcohol and bring it in with you. There's a bar there or they'll bring it to your seat and you can order real food. You can have sushi at movie theaters now if you really want to or burgers or whatever. But at the time, way back in 95, this was... This was novel. So for me to sit there and, wow, I can order real food and I can consume alcohol and watch a movie. It was about the greatest thing ever. And you know what? Yeah, they weren't big on IDing at the time. Obviously, everyone else at the table, Josh. But maybe it was the alcohol that loosened me up or just being around people in a less stiff theatrical environment. But all of a sudden... (laughs) All the pleasure, certainly all the humor and the genius of Pulp Fiction was revealed to me. And honestly, doesn't it make sense? I mean, where else would Quentin Tarantino want you to be watching one of his movies than with a pitcher of beer at a second run movie house called Billy Joe's Picture Show? I mean, that could be the title of a Tarantino movie, I think. It's pretty perfect. I wonder if, it does, do you know, it? does his L.A. theater serve Alcohol and food, it's, I, I wonder, it should. Good if question. It, if it New Beverly, it should. right? Yeah, New Beverly, right. <laughs> yeah, they, they probably do. They certainly have to. And like I said, I think that's the only time I ever went there. And if my history is correct, maybe in 2009, they stopped showing movies and they stayed around for a while as just a bar called Billy Joe's and they offered karaoke, but no more movies, no more magic 
like I had back in the summer of 1995. But I'm guessing anybody listening who grew up around the Des Moines area at this time has a memory and probably a fond one of going to Billy Joe's. Well, and, you know, that kept you from having to, you know, slip the cans of beer down the legs of your pants and and walk into the theater with them and pull them out. Yeah, so (laughs) made things a little classier. (laughs) All right, let's get to an email from Brian Saul. Maybe I'd feel differently if there were more, read any, art house theaters in my area. But man, nothing quite matches a packed house for a top-tier popcorn horror movie. The endless waves of anticipation and release during something like The Conjuring 2 or The Evil Dead remake is a truly visceral and exciting experience you can't really find anywhere else. I feel like the darker nature of the content connects an individual to those around them in a more immediately emotional way than you'd get with an action film or a comedy. Conversely, absolutely nothing is worse than a packed house for less bombastic horror like The Witch or Hereditary. It's tough to take a nature walk with people who think they're on a roller coaster, especially when they're cracking jokes about how unexciting the ride is. Oh, wow. I I didn't have that experience with The Witch, Brian, but it probably depends on what crowd you're seeing it with, I imagine. Yeah, and this comment from Zef Wagner, I talked about seeing Pulp Fiction and being with a crowd just reacting more to all the comedy in that film. He says, I'm really surprised at the low showing for full house opening night comedy in your poll. There's nothing better than a really good comedy with a packed house because laughter is infectious. One of my best movie experiences was seeing Superbad in the theater opening weekend with a sold out crowd. I remember it as just constant waves of the entire audience laughing. Many years later, I watched it alone at home. And I chuckled maybe a few times. For this reason, I think comedies benefit the most from being in a crowd in a theater compared to just watching at home. He might be right. Well, and, you know, this and the horror uh, comments speak to the publicist trick of showing comedies and horror movies to the press with packed theaters at night, right? There, yeah. A lot of films are screened during the day just for journalists, um, but they will often do broad comedies or horror movies, popular horror movies um, with an audience of moviegoers and then the critics get a couple rows just for that effect to have that experience and and I don't mind it I like seeing it with a crowd that way well Adam theaters are closed but Massacre Theater still open for business we're going <laughs> to play that next and continue sharing our top five movie going experiences stay with us well Saturday night at 8 o'clock I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up and take her to the picture show Everybody in the neighborhood Is dressing up to be there too And we're gonna have a ball Just like we always do Saturday night at the movies Who cares what picture you see When you're hugging with your baby Last row in the back What is the feminine for your word? That's what I am. I knew you were married and I walked right in with my eyes wide open. Betty Davis there referring to her signature feature, her eyes, in the trailer for 1942's Now Voyager. We're going to wrap up our four-film Davis Marathon next week with Now Voyager, directed by Irving Rapper. We're also going to share our Betty Davis Marathon Awards, and as longtime listeners know, Marathon Awards need a clever name. Sometimes it's not so clever. That's when we come up with it and we don't have a listener suggestion. In this case, fortunately, we do. Andrew Willis in Atlanta 
way ahead of the game, emailed a week or two ago, Josh, with this. Hello, everyone. I know you usually do a wrap-up discussion of your marathons and proclaim awards for different categories. You also usually crowdsource your names for the awards. I want to throw my suggestion in the mix, The Peepers. It's an obvious play on the incredible Ms. Davis's eyes, which I believe you have mentioned in passing in all or almost all of your discussions of her films. Plus, her eyes might be the feature for which she is best remembered. It also gives Sam a chance to spin a few bars from the Kim Carnes classic 1981 pop song. Hey, man, that's bringing back the nostalgic feelings. I hope Sam does manage to fit just a few bars into the show. Yeah, that's perfect for this episode. Yeah, and I think that name is perfect for the awards. The Peepers, it feels like something Michael Phillips would say, old-timey speak, and he would approve of the name. Doesn't it, Josh? Definitely. So next week on the show, we will talk now, Voyager. We will share the Peepers, and we will get to that 8 from 84 discussion of Ghostbusters versus Gremlins. We promise next week. Can't wait for that. Yeah, we wanted to acknowledge the passing just earlier today as we're recording this of Irfan Khan, just 53 years old, huge star in Indian cinema. He apparently objected to the term Bollywood, but of course had a career in Hollywood with Jurassic World, Life of Pi. He played the police inspector in Slumdog Millionaire, had a small part in your beloved Wes Anderson's Darjeeling Limited, and the movie and the performance I always think about, and maybe it's because it was the first time I ever saw Irfan Khan on screen, but I loved him as the father in Mira Nair's 2005 film, The Namesake, which was reviewed on this show by Sam and myself back in 05. Yeah, he is really, really strong in that. Just has this kind of um, an unspoken bravery in the film that really helps you connect with that story. This is a case where, you know, I I feel sorry I can't speak to what I am sure is an even richer and hugely Mm. varied career in Indian cinema. Uh, We've long talked about, you know, that as a potential marathon topic at some point, Adam, because aside from the uh, Satyajit Ray marathon we did, um, I think we're both, we both have a lot of education we could use in Indian cinema. So at some point, hopefully we can get to that. Every two weeks over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you will find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. Tasha, Scott, Keith, and Genevieve. This week, Josh, talking about High School Confidential, part two of their pairing, HBO's Bad Education, directed by Corey Finley, and 1999's Election from Alexander Payne. I haven't listened yet because I haven't seen Bad Education yet. Hugh Jackman, one of the stars of that, just premiered this past weekend, and It's gotten some good reviews so far. I'm actually eager to check it out. Yeah, it seems to have been well-received. We'll have to listen and see what the Next Picture Show folks have made of it. New episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. In a few weeks, we'll be getting ready for our monthly bonus episode. This is something we offer exclusively to our patrons over on Patreon. We call them family members. In addition to the monthly bonus episode, you get ad-free episodes, you get early downloads, live pre-sales and discounts in the event, Josh, we're hoping very soon we'll get to return to doing live shows, a merch discount as well. And you are probably happy. May's bonus episode, it's going to be a We Were Wrong Once look at Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. In this case, I'm probably the only one who's wrong. You have always adored this film. I have only seen it the one time back when it came out on DVD, I think, after it was in theaters. And I've always said 
It's my least favorite Wes Anderson, but I wonder if that's really the case. I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you might still be on the right side of history. I think, you know, the the general perception of this film is that um, it's not one of his strongest. I think it's, as I've said before, one of his most undiluted. It's it's so pure Wes Anderson. So, yeah, I can't wait to see um, how it strikes you this time around. I do like to feature some comments from our patrons every week. This one came in to us, Josh, from Chandler in Hillsdale, Michigan. He said, I found your podcast when I was in college, and I listened to hours of your archive while working my summer landscaping gig. In the four years since then, Film Spotting has been the only podcast I listen to every week. As a filmmaker and an English major, I so appreciate your insightful text-first discussions, but what has kept me coming back every week is just how fun each episode is. You guys don't take yourselves too seriously. Film Spotting Madness, Massacre Theater, Top 5, Sacred Cows, Golden Bricks, and ample community engagement make the show something I look forward to every Friday. So it was a no-brainer to finally jump in and contribute just a little cash each month to support all that you guys do. And now that I'm a family member, I get to look forward to it every Thursday instead of Friday. Chandler, thank you so much for that. And you know, Sam has always said it, if not publicly, at least privately, that the whole key to film spotting or something we at least have tried to adhere to is take the movie seriously. Just don't take yourselves too seriously. So Chandler is validating Sam's theory. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Chandler, for for the note and for joining the family. If anyone else is interested in becoming a film spotting family member at Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash film spotting. And speaking of not taking ourselves too seriously, Adam. <laughs> it's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene. You get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt a couple weeks back in its triumphant return. Adam and I massacred this scene. Odie, mm. that man sweeping up over there. Does he work for me? I mean, have you seen him before? It was Nick, something like that. Why is he looking at him? I don't know. Fire. Make sure they use damp brooms from now on. Respiratory diseases are expensive, and I don't want a bunch of damn lawsuits. Okay, but can we at least proceed with the instrument panel we discussed? The tool shop's ready to no, go. No, I want to see the blueprints again. Uh, Howard, the deadline is now completely unrealistic. At this rate, the war is going to be over by the time she's done. Now, I need you here to help consult on vital decisions, and you're off dealing with movies. you got a thousand goddamn workers waiting for you to make a decision hey, here. Hey, Odie! Take it easy, all right? I understand you're under a lot of pressure, but it's going to do me no good if you crack up on me like that. All right? Look, take a couple hours off, all right? You just you relax a little bit. Okay. See your wife. Okay. You should have shown me all the blueprints. All right. That was Leonardo DiCaprio as Howard Hughes and Matt Ross as Glenn Odie Odekirk in 2004's The Aviator. The Aviator was written by John Logan and, of course, directed by Martin Scorsese. On that show a couple weeks back, we shared the top five things we're streaming during quarantine. Plus, we talked about Dark Victory, the third film, and our Betty Davis marathon. Why then that scene from The Aviator? Well... Our listeners, as always, have the answers. Here's Sean Means from Salt Lake City. I was impressed with Josh's reading of Leonardo DiCaprio's version of Howard Hughes's Madness as you two enacted a scene from Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. And Adam was a great straight man as he read Matt Ross's role as Hughes' engineer, Glenn Odekirk. The natural link is Hughes' fear of contagious diseases, which led him to self-isolate, something we're all doing these days, though maybe not to Hughes' extremes. Streaming Brooklyn Nine-Nine episodes is a healthier response than saving jars of urine, in my humble opinion. I didn't know until I found Karina Longworth's essay on the subject that Howard Hughes had a brief affair with a married Betty Davis in 1938 or 39, not long after the filming of Jezebel. 
okay, I had to reach for this connection. DiCaprio co-starred in Sam Raimi's 1995 Western, The Quick and the Dead, opposite Gene Hackman, who also starred in Night Moves, one of the entries in Adam's Bruce Surtees Marathon. Aviv in L.A. says, I didn't get it until Josh asked for the blueprints. The connection with your Nolan Oeuvre review being... A, DiCaprio's appearance in what I believe will go down in history as Nolan's masterpiece, though not my number one favorite of his films, Curious Aviv, Inception. Aviv also noted what Sean mentioned, the Davis-Hughes relationship, and he threw in this additional tie-in, Nolan's long gestating Hughes movie starring Jim Carrey that died on the vine in favor of The Aviator. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to your Inception conversation and your take on Dom Cobb following dom cobb inception and dicaprio as a nolan doppelganger had you heard about that nolan hughes movie adam no not at all yeah that's that's new to me wow that's wild here's ken in newportville pennsylvania now i know josh was going for leonardo dicaprio in aviator but i couldn't stop hearing ross perot as howard hughes just as entertaining as always we got a few ross perots josh Oh, really? Jake, okay, well, the, yeah. the, then I'm going to say that's what I was going for. Of course. Jake in Seattle says, honestly, I'd like to see you guys read the entire script of The Aviator. It was legitimately cracking me up. So, you know what? We may run out of topics soon. <laughs> I was just And a multi-part say. film spotting <laughs> that's just us reading The Aviator. It could happen. I wouldn't put it out of the question without any new movies to talk about. Here's Holly from Madison, Wisconsin. I watched this movie for the first time just last night. I'm using this time we're in to get through Scorsese's filmography after seeing Goodfellas and absolutely loving it. Couldn't get over the quarantine moment in The Aviator. Next up for me, Hugo, Gangs of New York, and Silence. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for that, Holly. And I wanted to include that comment because honestly, just a few days before I read Holly's email, I had had a similar thought that I'm going to add to my list of things to stream during quarantine or things to catch up on, is Scorsese and his blind spots for me. I mentioned that The Aviator was one of them. There's no reason why I've never watched that film. I'm intrigued by the subject matter. I love DiCaprio. I love DiCaprio in Scorsese movies, and I've got a few of them. Honestly, there's at least three or four other Scorsese films I haven't seen, and I should take advantage of this time to try to solve that, Josh. Yeah, I think I've got got two or three myself, so hope to get to those soon. Why don't you reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat? Enough people must have saw through or listened through your Ross Perot imitation to hear DiCaprio as Howard Hughes. Tell us who this week's winner is. I did try to throw him off, but Andre Cadeau still managed to pick out the right film, and he wins. Andre's from Charlottesville, Virginia. Congrats, Andre. Yeah, Andre has been a very, very longtime listener, and I honestly was sure I was going to have to pick someone else because I'm like, Andre's probably won Massacre Theater three times, at least once. And I went back through the archive. I couldn't find it, Josh. I don't think Andre has somehow ever won. Maybe he already has a film spotting T-shirt, but we're going to give him another one. Congratulations. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your prize. What happened to the cannoli line? Max, you're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his cannoli. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And Josh, I'm just going to say it. I think this is going to be a tough one. We might need to give some kind of hint with the name. We're going to change the name, but still try to give you somewhat of a connection and somewhat of an explanation as to why we might be picking this scene, because there isn't otherwise anything in the dialogue. And I'm afraid that our 
versions of these two performers are not going to be enough to clue people in. Am I wrong? Oh, no. No, I, th- I think you are going to nail this. And, and by your eighth word, people uh, will know uh-huh. the actress. Uh-huh. And by your second line, they'll know the movie. Okay, well, I think your math is right. I was eyeing that eighth word as well. And if I don't nail it, we're all sunk. (laughs) I started off, you're going to give me the action. And action. What are you looking for, Peter? A date for the weekend? No, I'm just interested in you. You know, what do you want? What do you do? What do you like about? What kind of men are you interested in? What do you do for fun? Is this for real, Peter? Or are you just trying to make me look like a fool? I'm just trying to talk like normal people talk. Isn't this how they talk? Close. Okay, so talk to me. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. And a donut. All right. And, and scene. scene. I, I meant to lay in to date harder. I did. <laughs> you, a date. I, there you go. A date. That's a little better. <laughs> okay, maybe that'll help. <laughs> I botched it. I'm such a bad performer josh i apologize i don't know if anyone's going to get that i'm sorry if you know what film we just massacred email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net your deadline is monday may 11th the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks maybe adam this will be a clue we we could do the scene again you know just repeat it ah i see what you did there Hi, Adam and Josh. Uh, This is Noah from Connecticut and just wanted to share one of my top five movie-going experiences. Um, You know, I've been to a lot of shows like Avengers Endgame and Captain America Civil War and recent Star Wars movies where the crowd is cheering and everything. But uh, recently I went to my my first ever like indie theater showing for First Cow. And as somebody who's really recently gotten into movies and listening to your podcast and other film podcasts it was really cool to get to go to an indie theater outside of boston um, i believe it was called the coolidge corner theater for the first time and it was pitch black and a huge theater kind of set up like um a stage theater and it was so quiet and there were these like blue lights on the side and i had never ever seen a movie in a theater like this and it was really an eye-opening experience that made me really want to go seek out other theaters like this and other films like this. And it was such a quiet movie experience that I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately with coronavirus, that's not exactly possible right now, but um, I can't wait to get back to a movie going in the future. So thanks guys. Back to our countdown of our top five movie going experiences, something we're all missing right now, the chance to see movies in a theater, share that experience with other people. And I love Noah's voicemail there talking about a recent film, a recent film we both loved and gave a very positive review to. Was it the last movie we had a normal let's say, discussion about before this all hit and we had to get creative with what our show was going to be every week? That sounds right. It also feels like First Cow came out five years ago at this this point. So yeah, totally. But the Coolidge is a great theater. I don't think I've ever been there. I think I'd remember it, but I know that cinephiles in Boston love that theater. And I think that will set up nicely my choice here in a second at number two, but let's hear yours. All right. My number two is another date movie memory. This is Miller's Crossing with Debbie. So we're talking October 1990 in high school again. I want to say we'd been dating maybe for about six months and, you know, obviously known each other previously to that, but still relatively, I don't know, maybe our, maybe our sixth date, something like that, seventh date. I don't know. 
We drove downtown to see it at the very plush but now defunct Water Place Theaters. I don't know, Adam, by the time you moved to Chicago, they might have been gone already. Yeah, I don't think I ever made it there. Yeah, they were. it was kind of like, it, it was in a high-rise mall, so it wasn't like the movie Palace that mm-hmm. you might think of, but it was made to look like a movie Palace. The red carpet, you know, a lot of gold, that sort of sensibility, even though it was on a way upper floor. You know, this wasn't your average high school date. I, I feel like this was pretty impressive of me to, to drive all the way downtown, <laughs> take her to, to Water Place. And I've talked before on the show how Miller's Crossing itself was sort of a, this was a cinephile epiphany movie for me, right? One of those times where you really, it starts to click where you realize what the filmmakers are doing behind the camera to give mm-hmm. you the experience. You're having those specific decisions. I think I talked a lot about the clinking ice in that opening shot just being an epiphany moment for me. So obviously I loved it. Debbie did too, to my great relief, though I felt like it was a good pick because for some reason she was really into gangster movies when we first met. Um, hmm. So so that was a good sign. I thought, yeah, Miller's Crossing should do the trick. It was great. It was just a night where it all came together. You know, this cinephile epiphany, something of a romantic epiphany at the same time. Not going to forget that one. Miller's Crossing with Debbie. And it all worked out. Here you are, a hundred years later, still together. <laughs> yes, celebrating our hundredth anniversary this month. <laughs> as a matter of fact, only now she now she forces me not to go to gangster movies, but Fast and Furious movies. So I don't know, something went awry mm. along the way. <laughs> well, my number two, not a date, not a romantic getaway, but it was a professional excursion with someone near and dear to us both, Josh, and that's. Sam Van Halgren at the time, just a Sam Halgren. There was no van. And the experience is Ebert Fest, mm. the Virginia Theater, Champaign Urbana, Illinois. I have the exact date, April 23rd, 2005. Sam and I are eight episodes into the show, then called Cinecast, and we're hitting the road for the first time. Podcasting from the Red Roof Inn. Yes. There wasn't much budget. We definitely weren't going out and buying anybody drinks, Josh. There was there was no film spotting credit card at the time. And this was my first Ebert Fest experience, and it was my first festival type experience, period. Not that Ebert Fest is necessarily like Toronto or Sundance, but the first time I remember sitting in one theater and watching movies back to back to back. And watching them at a place like the Coolidge, a classic, amazing old theater house that I'd never been to before, the Virginia, which opened in 1921, I think, seats 1,500 people. So we think about how much we love, yeah, we love the Music Box, another grand old movie house here in Chicago, and how big it is. And this place holds twice as many people as the Music Box. And you know what makes me so grateful about the experience, too, is 2002 was when Roger first was diagnosed with cancer. And he had surgery in 2003 and went through radiation treatments, and then it went into remission. So in 2005, this is still very much the Roger Ebert that we grew up with, Mm -hmm. that everyone knows from the TV show. That big personality, that great sense of humor, it's Ebert conducting all the Q&As, introducing all the movies, sitting there in the theater with everyone else watching. And the cancer comes back in 2006. And that year's fest, which I don't believe I made it to, I don't think I got to any screenings that year, but the 06 Ebert Fest was the last one where Roger was still able to speak. Mm. So what an experience being able to 
to recall this and reflect back on 05 and seeing Roger really, I suppose, not in his prime, but it felt that way to me. And then on top of it, the movies. Sam and I went down on this Saturday specifically because it was a full slate of great stuff. At noon, I got to see a movie from one of my idols at the time, one of my filmmaking idols at the time that I hadn't seen yet. And I got to watch it, obviously, for the first time there at the Virginia Theater, John Sayles, The Secret of Rowan Inish. And Sayles was there along with his producing partner, Maggie Renzi. That was at noon. Then at three, we got to watch Primer for the first time with Shane Carruth there doing a Q&A with Ebert after. Now, this is where I apologize. At 6.30 was Map of the Human Heart, and I'm sorry, director Vincent Ward and star Jason Scott Lee. Sam and I were really hungry, and we'd watched two movies in a row. You walked out? We needed, yeah, we needed to go have some food. So we said, you know what? We're going to skip out on this one, <laughs> but we're going to be sure to come back for the 9.30, me and you and everyone we know, with writer-director Miranda July and the producer from IFC, Jonathan Searing. So those are three movies I feel pretty confident about liking and going to bat for, even removed from the Ebert Fest experience. But those movies with those filmmakers, with Roger Ebert in that theater, surrounded by 1,500 cinephiles reacting to every funny line, every emotional beat, every dramatic moment, it it really was movie magic. Yeah, and I think was at that point was it still called the Overlooked Film Festival because I know when he started that was kind of the conceit of it, right? That he that would was, pick these yeah. personal favorites of his and and certainly that would apply I think to the sales film which I don't know I think is really strong but I don't know if it's held in as high a regard as a lot of his other work. But yeah, that's a great festival. Uh, you and I hit it. I think it might have been the first year if not the first year, the second after I joined the show. Um, at that point, we were able to hang out with some film spotting listeners, so that was fun. But that theater is, I mean, talk about a balcony. The balcony in the Virginia is just yeah. gargantuan, uh, but you can get the whole scope of the you know, the decor in the theater and the stage. It's a beautiful place. That's where we sat, too, as I recall. I think we saw Take Shelter and Jeff Nichols and Michael Shannon were both that there. That sounds and I right, think, yeah. I think we got there a little late. We drove down just for that movie, and ended up sitting like in the second or third to last row, but it was still yep. fantastic. Let's share another email here from Steve Parsons. I answered other in the poll because I found that there's nothing like a full house at a film festival. It's usually the first time anyone has seen the movie. Plus, you're all there knowing what to expect and for the same purpose. And it adds to that communal sense of watching a movie. Each year, I attend the True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri, and almost every screening is an amazing experience. It's a documentary film fest. And to underscore the power of the experience, usually when I watch those docs later with others, something is lost. The doc is still as good as it was but I end up not enjoying it in the same way. True, false. One of those, we've said it multiple times that we need to get there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I have some plans for that possibly happening uh, next year. Let's just let's just hope the festival and many others happen as well. So Absolutely. Does that bring us to our number one choices, Adam? I think we're here. We're ready. All right. I mentioned uh, the last show that I knew I saw. I'm kind of bookending yours. I didn't go chronologically. Um, so I'm going all the way back to the beginning here at the end of my list. I knew that I saw an Indiana Jones film when I was really little while on vacation with my dad. I just didn't remember what film or many other details beyond it just being an absolute thrill. So I asked my dad what he remembered. Hi, Josh. Thanks for uh, inviting me to share my memories of 
the two of us going to see your first movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, this is my second time on um, Film Spotting. I think that's twice as many times as Martin Scorsese, so I feel honored. My memory is that we were at a cottage uh, in Silver Lake, Michigan, and the film was showing in Pentwater, Michigan, about <clears throat> 10 miles away. It's a very small town, tourist town, harbor town. So this was going to be your first movie, and I'm not sure who was more excited to see it, you or me. But we went early for supper in a restaurant that had a stuffed grizzly bear on the second floor overlooking the sidewalk. And the movie itself was in the small Pentwater Theater, which had a leaky roof and um, a nursery for crying infants. You were around seven years old, if I'm not mistaken, and you were absolutely infatuated with the movie then and ever since. And uh, I've sent a picture. I hope that uh, will find its way on Film Spotting's website. It's of you and your sisters at Halloween when you were dressed up as Indiana Jones. And I think you wanted to sleep in that outfit that night. So that's my memory. I hope this helps, and I hope you get to see it again. Take care. Say hi to Sam and Adam. Recurring guest, Dave Larson. Yeah, I guess, and I sense he might be a little insulted. He hasn't been asked back earlier. I don't know. I'm going to have to talk to him about that. As I recall, Josh, we had a great recording with your dad <laughs> viewing. So he's welcome back anytime, though... We don't know when that will be, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. I want well, to see him just over your shoulder on Skype, <laughs> well, just judging um, everything you're saying. No, we'll do one of those creepy photos of like grandparents visiting the grandkids through the window glass. It, it always makes me think of like a horror movie and they're just, he'll be outside my window <laughs> looking through. <laughs> Love it. Anyway, I guess according to his report, my first movie in a theater, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981, seven years old. I mean, not too bad, right? And of course, what made it special was getting away to see it with my dad. This vacation, it was an annual one we took. It was a family reunion thing, really. So about 80 people would gather over the same two weeks every year at a bunch of cottages. And aside from a, a nightly walk to the local ice cream shop, you didn't really leave those cottages or the lakefront. You were kind of, you know, and we were fine with it. You were running wild. As you said, the, the freedom of like the late 70s and early 80s for kids, mm -hmm. it was fantastic. But you didn't really get out of that area much. So to get away, just the two of us, and then to have it be to witness one of the best action adventure films of all time, perfect. Uh, more than watching the movie, actually, I mean, I've seen Raiders so many times. I think it might be playing at my house right now as we're recording. I think my daughter's watching it with some friends. But it's kind of blurred together, you know, my experience of seeing the film. What I do vividly recall from this day, though, was the poster on the outside of the theater with Harrison Ford in that hat. You better believe that I was going to be him for Halloween. Did anybody buy you a sweatshirt that said Indiana Jones on it? Adam, uh, as my dad mentioned with that photo, you will see. <laughs> Maybe I'll share it on the Patreon, Film Spotting Family page on Patreon. You will see how homemade my Indiana Jones costume was. I mean, if there was ever bonus content to pay for. I think it's this picture. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, this truly is a perfect bookend to this top five, because we're going to go from the past for you all the way back. We're going to go to as close to the present as you can get on my list for my number one. And we're going to jump from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the movie, of course, about 
Josh, that father-son relationship between Indiana and Henry, played by Sean Connery. I saw this movie at the Music Box Theater, Chicago, September 21st, 2018. I did share this experience or a little bit of the details of it on our end of year roundtable back in 2018. I think Sam just wanted us to riff for a little bit on what our favorite experiences at the theater were that year. And I had to admit that it really wasn't a 2018 movie. It was seeing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at the Music Box. It's the 70 millimeter film festival, which we missed this year unfortunately, because of the crisis. Yeah, hit just when uh, that was about to open, yeah. And the film was a blow-up print with the magnetic sound, but just seeing it in 70 millimeter at that theater with that crowd, that group dynamic, different than Ebert Fest, in that almost everybody there at the Virginia was seeing those movies for the first time. Here, almost everyone in attendance is a fan of the same film or franchise, and can recite almost every line. And probably more than that, Josh, tell you Spielberg's exact camera angle when that line is performed. And plus, it was a Friday night, right? So everybody's ready to have a good time. And I brought my three oldest kids. So Holden, Sophie, and Quinn. Didn't think Connor at the time was ready for that experience, but Holden and Sophie had already watched the film with me at home and really liked it. And of course, with all the historical aspects to that and all the stuff with the grail, it was right up Holden's alley. But Holden and Sophie both loved it. And I really knew that Quinn was just at that perfect age at about 10 to really enjoy this film. Plus, he has the same history bug that his brother does. He wants to be just like his older brother. And that packed house clapping together when we see Harrison Ford's face for the first time. It's that smirk, that Indiana Jones smirk on the boat in the opening sequence, getting punched. Everybody applauds. And then when the Nazis show up the first time, everybody boos. It was like a midnight (laughs) movie type experience. And Quinn's already in heaven. But then when we get to the part where Indiana has Connery's diary, And they're in the Nazi parade, and all of a sudden, Hitler grabs the book, and there's that pause, right? That dramatic pause of trying to figure out what's going to happen next, like how ludicrous is this? And then he signs it. I just remember looking at Quinn. I think Sophie was between us. I remember looking at Quinn, and he's laughing so hard he could barely (laughs) breathe, right? And that's maybe the most rewarding movie experience you can have right there when you're sharing it with kids. And I mentioned this earlier that we came of age in the 80s, so we mostly remember that home video era and having cable channels, if we were lucky, like HBO and Cinemax. So you didn't have to see movies in the theater to watch them with your siblings or to watch them with your parents. Now it's on their phones. It's at their fingertips, right? Anytime they want to watch any of this stuff, they can pretty much bring it up. So Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is number one for me, I think, because of that larger communal experience, the pure excitement of that crowd, but combining that with the smaller communal experience of sharing something I loved with my kids and seeing the pleasure that they got from it. It helps, too, as with all of these films, I think, that we listed it helps that the movie itself is pretty special too. Sure. Yeah. And man, that, so so you're hitting on what hurts so much about not being able to, because obviously we've been watching a lot of, we talked about it on our, a recent episode, the things we've been streaming and watching. We're doing a lot of watching with the family at home, but it's not the same. You're right. It's not the same as getting everyone into a theater where their attention is focused. 
the same time on the same thing on the screen and you're sharing it in a way you just can't if a handful of you are in the family room watching something but you know getting up to get something to eat or someone's on their phone for something for a little while you know it's 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 good it's good time together with good films but it's not the same as being in the dark together and the crowd, you know, the larger crowd is something that Eric Houter in an email, another email that we got mentioned as being key to a great movie experience. He wrote, the most fun I've ever had in a theater was a crowded dollar theater showing of 1993's Judgment Night. The crowd was outrageously engaged, hooting and hollering at every turn in what can only be generously referred to as a B-movie. In fact, I've seen a lot of films at the dollar theater that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, and they are some of my favorite movie-going memories. Stuff like Event Horizon. Devil's Advocate and Surviving the Game play so much better in a crowded house where everyone paid a buck to get in. A stomping good time with a room full of like-minded strangers sounds so damn good right about now. <laughs> so yeah, maybe Eric countering there a bit, Adam, that the movie necessarily has to be quality. Maybe the, the crowd just has to be quality. Oh, this next one's going to hurt you because I think this voicemail I want to share from Ben Ashworth in Lombard, Illinois, definitely proves the point you just made. Hi, Film Spotting. This is Ben Ashworth from Lombard, Illinois, calling in to share my one of my top movie-going experiences, and that is the midnight showing on release night in 1999 of Star Wars: The Phantom Menace. Uh, now, I'm a I'm a modest Star Wars fan. I enjoy them, but I'm not diehard by any means. But when Phantom Menace came out, I was 12 years old, and my parents decided to take my whole family for the first showing available at midnight. And what made it so special was not just the excitement of the wait for a new Star Wars movie, but the one of the theater employees prior to starting the movie came up in front of the crowd and really um, pulled out the stops to get us riled up. He was... Uh, shouting, you know, it's about time. He had the crowd chanting back to him, hell yeah, with excitement, which was an edgy thing for me to chant at the time at 12. Um, and it, I think of it uh, just as, you know, whether whatever your opinion of that movie, uh, whether good or bad, it's an example of just enjoying the hype of something together and getting uh, riled up and anticipating something and sharing in it together. So top experience for me. Bye. So there you have it. It doesn't have to be a good movie, Josh. It could be The Phantom Menace. Oh, man. The the, the nostalgia that The Phantom Menace gives me alone. Right. That's a great movie-going experience. Well, I did want to play that, not to try to get in a shot at you because you appreciate that film so much, but because it did set up a couple honorable mentions for me. Two Star Wars experiences at the movie theater. Watching A New Hope re-release. Remember when those came out? 97? Yeah. I was oh, a yeah. senior in college. January 31st, opening night, 1997, me and my best friends from school made the drive, made the hour drive to Des Moines, went to a theater that Sarah and I used to go to all the time in Des Moines, another great movie house if anybody is listening from that area, the River Hills and the Riviera. They were two theaters together, and Josh, they were just enormous. Like, if a new movie came out that I really wanted to see... I had to go see it at the River Hills or the Riviera because it was just epic in its scope. It was like IMAX pre-IMAX, right? And I love these theaters. And that moment when you hear the Williams score, the trumpets blast, the Star Wars logo on screen, pre-scrawl. And remember, this is 97 when 
I haven't seen a Star Wars movie in the theater since maybe my number five, seeing it at the drive-in, Star Wars A New Hope back in 78 or 79. I don't remember seeing Empire or Return at the theater. I think I watched them on home video or on TV for the first time. So that moment when you're actually watching a Star Wars movie as an adult on the screen, it hits you that moment when that logo and that sound happens. And I remember just having the nostalgia just rush over me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then fast forward a few years later, and Sarah and I have had our first child, Holden, and the Attack of the Clones has opened May 2002. And I'm thinking, you know what? I don't know if this movie is going to be any good or not. And based on The Phantom Menace, I'm not that excited to see it, but it's still Star Wars. And damn it, my son is going to be able to say that watching a Star Wars movie was his first theatrical experience, even if he will definitely have no recollection of it at two months old. And you know what? Holden must not have liked the picture much because baby Holden decided to scream and cry pretty much within the first 15 or 20 minutes. And I remember having to go out to the lobby to try to console him. So I missed I missed some parts of that. Caught up with it later, Josh. Still didn't like it. Well, Adeline, our older daughter, a, a little bit younger than Holden, which means she was in the womb during Attack of the Clones. Adam, we went to see this. <laughs> Debbie's water broke outside of the theater. What? <laughs> yes. From Attack of the Clones. That's Adam, that's the power of the prequels. Yeah, yeah. The power is it sends your two-month-old screaming into the lobby or your unborn child screaming to get out of the womb. No, she's like, that's Let not, me out of here. That movie sounds awesome. I I gotta I I can't just listen to it. I've gotta see it. Right. Okay. Any other quick ones you want to mention? Uh, no, this does remind me, I did on Twitter put out a thread at the, at the end of the year, the favorite movie going experiences of 2019 I had. So maybe I'll go ahead. I don't remember all of those off the top of my head. I know Jojo Rabbit with a crowd was one of them. I know seeing uh, The Lighthouse with you and Debbie and Sarah was another one. So yeah, when I'll I told ahead. Sarah about this list, she said, what about The Lighthouse? That was certainly <laughs> memorable. Yep, exactly. So I'll go ahead in the show notes. We could maybe link to that full list, which will serve as some more honorable mentions. Okay, I've just got a few quick ones here, not in any particular order. The Usual Suspects in London when I'm a student and we were on a visit to another town. I don't even remember where. It might have been Stratford or something. And we had a night to kill. And I picked the movie for our group of eight or nine friends. And I said, you know what? I think this Usual Suspects is going to be really good. No one knew anything about it. And watching that theater with my friends, the moment the reveal happens, caught every single one of us completely off guard. And then everyone was raving about the movie the rest of the night. And I was the hero because I picked it. Wow, look at you. Yeah, 70 millimeter at the Music Box with Holden and Sophie, 2001 for the first time on the big screen. Yeah, great. that would have been better if my kids had gone for it a little bit more, I think. Now yeah. now they kind of hold it against me. The one the one I'm more proud of because they actually loved and I thought was pretty great, Cleopatra. I mean, all huh. like all 12 hours. <laughs> they thought it was great. <laughs> well, I was fortunate. Holden and Sophie both did go for it. Seeing Brick for the first time in New York City with film spotting listeners. I think the first time I ever saw a movie with film spotters. And then I mentioned seeing Top Gun with my dad 
in the 80s. And what was memorable about that was not just seeing the movie with your dad, but how about having to endure any sex scene with your parents? Well, I was going to ask you that because, but you said you had already seen it. So you knew that was coming. I know. And I brace myself for it. (laughs) Take my breath away. More like take me out of the theater or take me under the seat. I mean, and it's not just, it's not just a sex scene, right? It's that super slow. Oh, it's so 80s. Dramatic sex scene. It's so 80s. So you, of course, love it. And <laughs> I just I just was praying for this to end. And then fortunately it did. And we got back to jets trying to shoot each other down. Yeah. And no one spoke of what they had just seen. That's right. Those are our top five movie going experiences. We did it, Josh. Sam, we hope we did you proud. Yes, you won, Sam. We finally did it. If you would like to share your favorite movie going experience, we'd love to hear more Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And at the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. To order Filmspotting t-shirts or other Filmspotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to the weekly Filmspotting newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You have another week to do your 8 from 84 homework. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters and Gremlins, and we'll conclude our Betty Davis Marathon next week with 1942's Now Voyager, and we'll get to our Betty Davis Marathon Awards as well. If you've been following along and you have a favorite Davis performance, maybe you have a favorite Betty Davis moment, we would love to hear your pick for what we're calling the peepers, email us feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us an audio file. You can also leave us a voicemail if you'd like, 312-264-0744. The only thing there is you will have to leave it in the voice of Betty Davis. Please do. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.